0: Our scripture reading today is Hebrews 10, 1-4. Hebrews 10, 1-4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make a perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all, and no one would longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away their sins. So glad to hear uh, that Rick is doing well. And uh, Earl, I saw him earlier. I know if he's here, I'm sh- sure that means it went well. His operation procedure went well as also. So we're glad about all of that. And uh, I'm sure... Both of those men would ask for continued prayers. We all remember where we were when we heard the news. Those of us who are old enough, at least. We remember the feeling in the pit of our stomach. We remember the reaction of everyone around us. We remember where we were standing. We remember like it was yesterday. and. Communally, we experienced it all together. An entire nation, and in some senses, the entire world, all paused, all stopped to watch and to gasp in horror as the horrible tragedy took place. And yet, even though the entire world seemed to stop and watch, it didn't actually stop spinning, did it? It kept spinning, and the clock kept ticking, and now here we are, Years later, and there are people who are even in college, and perhaps even older, who don't even remember the event. To them, it's another piece of history for the history books. It's not something that they personally feel invested in. And, and it's weird, for me at least, maybe it's weird for you, because we who remember it, and I know there are some in this room who were actually there, but we who remember and who remember the experience, for us, it, it's not just some moment in history to be pushed back and into the books. It was an event that changed our lives. It was an event that changed our country and a, a, an event that changed the world. We all remember the feeling. It's etched into us, into our minds forever. Now, what I want you to do this morning is take that feeling for a moment and imagine that you are a first century Jewish person. Imagine that you are living in the first century, that you are a a Jewish, uh, at least ethnically, you are a Jewish person, and you hear the news that Jerusalem has been destroyed. That the temple is no more. That it has ceased to exist. You see, in the years A.D. 70, the Roman Empire has had enough of the Jewish revolutions, the Jewish revolts and the rebellious spirit, so they have decided to fall upon the city with a great devastation. And what they have done is they have slaughtered women and children, they have leveled the city to the ground. We read the writings of Josephus and we see just how horrible it was. Here's a quote from him. He said, Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, Titus, that is Caesar, gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. And he writes that they decided only to leave up a a few of the towers and walls. Why? So that future generations, when they saw this heap of rubble, when they saw this desert... he, he. Basically, they knew people wouldn't believe that this had ever been a city. That's how devastating the destruction was. So they left the towers up only so that people would realize, wow, the Romans are powerful. They can take down a great fortified city like this. And Josephus continues on. He talks about how travelers who were passing through, or foreigners, even people who weren't Jewish, that they would mourn at the great destruction if they had ever seen what the city was like before. Because before it had been filled, as he says, with pleasant gardens and with suburbs and trees, and yet now every tree had been cut down and in its place was left a, a wasteland, a desert. And he says all the people could do was mourn at how great the change had been. This destruction was so devastating and the victory of Rome so decisive that they commemorated it forever in what's called the Arch of Titus. Maybe you've seen this image before, uh, but you can you can go to this arch even today and see their depiction of all of the furnishings of the temple being carried out and paraded through the streets of Rome alongside many of the Jewish rebels who had been captured. Now imagine you're a first century Jewish person and you hear the news. Maybe you were there and you witnessed it. Although if you were there and you witnessed it, it's it's not likely you survived. okay? Because according to Josephus, the number he estimates of how many people were killed is somewhere around a million. But imagine you're a first century Jewish person. Maybe you're living in Greece. Maybe you're living in even in Rome. But you hear the news and you'll always remember where you were standing. You'll always remember that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you heard that everything was gone. That the city was destroyed. This great capital of David was gone. And that the temple itself was leveled to the ground. Not only did you... Do you feel the loss of your countrymen? Not only do you feel the loss of your great capital, you also feel the loss of your religion itself. Because the temple was the focal point of the Jewish religion. It was where everything happened. And it was also the dwelling place of God. And so now you're a Jewish person and you hear it's gone. You feel as if God has abandoned you. You feel as if there is no way for you to, to be atoned, for your sin to be atoned. You feel like you've lost everything. Now, this is why I brought up September 11th. Because I think oftentimes when we read about the destruction of Jerusalem, when we read about the destruction of the temple, we're so far removed from it. We're removed from it ethnically, religiously, and even chronologically. Right? We're so far removed from the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that it doesn't quite impact us. But it impacted them. It was such an impactful event that you can see the ripple effects of it in these very pages. Did you know that many scholars date the writings of the New Testament based upon whether or not the destruction of Jerusalem is mentioned or alluded to? You see, it was such a monumental event that the uh, that there's a pre and a post, okay? That there's a before and after for the people of Israel. For Jews all around the world it, the writings of the Jewish people pre-destruction were very different from the writings post-destruction and it's just not very uh, believable for someone to think that a Jew would be writing to a Jewish group of people and not mention it if, it if they were writing after the destruction that's how big an event it was, that's how devastating it was and we need to understand how important it was to them if we're going to understand how important the temple itself was to the people of Israel. And that goes all the way back to the first incarnation of the temple, the tabernacle. In our sermon series, uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus in our series called He Can and He Will. We've been going through the story that we know so well and oftentimes when we think of the book of Exodus, these are the things we think of. We think of Moses in the basket, We think of the ten plagues. We think of the crossing of the Red Sea and the parting and that amazing salvation moment for the people. We also think of Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? These are the things we think of. It's not, in in my experience, we don't often think about the tabernacle when we think of the book of Exodus. However, at least 12 chapters are devoted to the building, to the construction, the design, of this great tent. And that is what tabernacle means, right? It is a sanctuary, a portable sanctuary, because the people are portable and God's going to be portable with them. And and at least 12 chapters of the book of Exodus are devoted to the creation and the design of this building. And yet, I think oftentimes when we read some of these details, right, and we're going to look at some of them this morning, I think sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we can get a little bored. Maybe for some of us, a, gla- you know, a glaze falls over our eyes. Again, because we're so far removed. But we need to understand that God gives all of these details because every single detail matters. And every single detail is a symbol for something. Now, we don't have time to go through every single detail. And I would encourage you to study uh, many of these on your own. But let's look at at least a few. Starting here in, in Exodus 25. Go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 25. I'll start in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him you shall t- raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet material. Fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red. Porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting. Spices for anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And so, the people of Israel are asked to give of their newfound wealth. Right? These the wealth that they are that they are giving of their own uh, generosity. God is not forcing them to do it, but they are giving uh, how their heart moves them. And they are, what they're giving is plunders from Egypt. These are the things that the Egyptians had thrown on them as they were leaving, as they were exiting, right? All this gold and silver and all of these fine linens and and everything else. And here they are now giving them to Moses and to the workers so that a sanctuary can be built. And God tells Moses... This, that there is a very specific structure that he demands of this sanctuary. Very specific in detail. He says, there's a pattern here and you're going to follow it. He even goes on in, in verse 40 uh, to say, see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. And that, that statement is repeated several times in the next few chapters. And the idea is that God is giving them details now and, and those details are recorded in this book. But God says, if there's any moment where you feel like it's a little vague, don't worry. I'm going to show you the actual pattern. I'm going to show you exactly what it needs to look like on the mountain. And that's what you're going to follow. You're not going to make some sanctuary based on your own creativity. You're not going to make a sanctuary based on whatever you know, you know would please your eyes. You're going to make it a very in a very specific way. And you're going to furnish it in a very specific way too. And several of these chapters here uh, are thus describe the furnishings of the tabernacle. We of course know about the ark. We've seen Indiana Jones. Okay. We always think of that, right? That's the that's the image of the ark that they that they kind of created. We don't know exactly what it looked like, but we we know a few things. From this chapter here. Chapter ten or chapter twenty five, verse ten it says, They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, and a half cub excuse me, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out, you shall overlay it. And you shall make a gold moulding around it. So it says Make the ark. What's an ark? It's a box. He's ha- he has them create a box out of acacia wood and then they are to overlay it with gold. Now, there's a few things we need to note here. First of all, all of the furnishings, whenever wood was used, it, it's made out of acacia wood. Now, why acacia wood? Why, is, why that specific type of wood? Well, many scholars and many rabbis would tell you that the, probably the reason is because acacia trees aren't fruit-bearing trees. We see a commandment later in Deuteronomy that if the people of Israel were, were ever besieging a city, they could cut down trees to make siege equipment, but they were not allowed to cut down fruit-bearing trees. It's an interesting little uh, command there, interesting little note. And so, all of these trees that are being, uh, all of the wood that is being used to make this furniture, uh, it's not tree, it's not fruit-bearing trees that are being used. Another note: gold is, of course, being used. And you'll notice that the most important parts of the ark, the most uh, ark, the most important parts of the tabernacle, were made of gold. And the, the the further inside the tabernacle you got, the more important things go. And the less important it is, the more you back out of the most holy place, the less precious the metals become. Okay, so you see kind of a progression of gold to silver to bronze. Okay. The point is. This is the most important place in the tabernacle. The ark. And he even, it's not just the ark being described here. In verse 17, he talks about the lid of the ark. Verse 17, it says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. In other words, turned downward. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. There I will meet with you, and from the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about, that, about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So now we have the description of this lid to the box being described here, right? The lid is made of pure gold, and it's called the mercy seat. And it's also called a covering. And by the way, and this is an important note that will come back later, the key key word in the Hebrew there for covering, it comes from the same root word as the word for atonement. So there's a deep connection there. And so the idea of atonement is very much connected to a covering. There's a sense in which you could say atonement is the covering up of sins. And so the covering of the ark, the covering of this box... Is an extremely important place, perhaps the most important piece of all the tabernacle. Because here, not only is it covering what's inside, it also has two cherubim. Now, what is a cherub? Okay? I'll tell you right now, it's not a little baby with wings. They are described in Ezekiel, and they're quite fascinating and terrifying creatures. They are winged creatures with. Four faces: that of a lion, that of an ox, that of an eagle, and that of a man. And, and these winged creatures—they're always uh, near the presence of God. They're always in His in His service. They're always at His throne. In, in the Ezekiel passage, they're they're holding Him up, and, and in a sense, they are upholding his, the the very throne of God. They're at His feet, holding Him up. And I think the very same image is being used here with the mercy seat. That here we are inside the tabernacle, right before the ark, and you have the cherubs, cherubim, they are upholding what you could call the throne of God. So that, and God says, there I will be, there I will meet with you, verse 22. This is where God's presence is. Being upheld by the cherubim. Now there's more to it than just, those two, just the ark, right? That's the most holy place. Uh, sorry, this image is a little dark. Uh, but the most holy place was separated off from the holy place. And you can see it was separated off by a curtain or the veil, uh, which again is described in this passage. God was very specific what kind of linen was to be used. There are other pieces of furniture used. There's the altar of incense and where where the priests would burn incense. And God was not only specific in the altar, but He was specific in the incense itself. And he, he said, you're going to take these specific aromas, and then He tells them, no lay person, no regular person, is allowed to use those aromas for their own perfume, or their own cologne, right? It's only for God. It's to be set apart for Him alone. So there's... There's also the table of the showbread, which has the unleavened bread. And oh, there's a lot of symbolism there. But I I can already tell that most of you are getting bored. (laughs) This is is what's sad about this. There's a lot of fascinating things here. Sorry, I didn't mean to maybe play my hand too too much there. Uh, But there's so many fascinating things here. There's also the menorah or the lampstand. And this is... uh, based upon an almond tree, is what it's supposed to be based on. And uh, scholars have noted that the almond tree was the first spring flower uh, to to bloom in, in Israel. And so it represents that renewal, that life. But I believe it also represents the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Again, in there in the presence of God. And this menorah, of course, has become a symbol for the Jewish people. And it's Continued to this day as an amazing symbol. God is very specific in all of these details, and all of the furnishings, and exactly what the tent, the tabernacle, is to be built from, and what the court—you know, what's in the courtyard. I didn't even go over what's in the courtyard. Right there is the altar where the sacrifices were actually made. Uh, these passage, this passage also describes the very clothing that the priests were to wear. Why? Why all of these details? Why such a specific pattern? Well, he gives us the answer in Exodus 29, verses 43 through 45. Exodus 29, verses 43 through 45. And it says, speaking of the tabernacle, he says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and there shall be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt and I will dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And I, I love the, the way God uses those personal terms. He says, I'm their God. I'm theirs. Right? And he says, this is why I brought them out of the land of Egypt it's, and this is why I'm having them build a tabernacle. Both, both questions have the same answer. I'm doing it so that I can dwell among my people. See, God wants to be among His people. He wants to dwell in our presence and in in His people's presence. And that's what really the job of a priest is. The job of a priest, simply put, is to mediate between God and man. The in-between person who can bring both parties together. Right? Right? And, and we might wonder, again, why all, of these, why all of these details, right? Why this specific configuration with the tabernacle? Why not continue the way things were going already? Because Moses, up to this point, has been operating pretty much as a priest. He's been the mediator, mediator between God and the people of Israel. And, and so why do we now find Moses' final act as priest is to consecrate here in chapter 29 a new priesthood, the sons of Aaron? why does he go through all of this again it goes back he these are very specific patterns made so that he can dwell among his people but there's even more to it than just that which we'll see in a moment but we fast forward the tabernacle becomes the temple gets destroyed gets rebuilt a long story, obviously, but then we fast forward all the way to 8070, and now you're a Jewish person, and you find out it's all gone. It's been destroyed. And that's what you've lost. You've lost the idea that God is dwelling among you. But let's say you're not just a Jewish person, you're also a Christian. You're a Jewish Christian. And yes, even for you, it's a devastating loss. Even for you to see it all go it is sad and tragic and to see your capital destroyed. It's something you will remember for the rest of your life. However, you still have hope. Whereas your Jewish neighbors, your Jewish friends, they have no hope at this point. The, the temple sacrifice is completely is, has gone and they don't know how they're ever going to be atoned from sin. But you as a Christian... You do have hope. And may, let's just, for the sake of our imagination, say you hear the news. You're devastated, but then you walk into your house and you pull out a scroll or you pull out a piece of parchment. You dust it off and you read these words from the, of this letter that was written to you. For the law, since it is only it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very former things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? You read passages such as that in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And you see in other places in Hebrews, even in chapter 7 and verse 22, where the writer says, So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And you read again, jogging, let's say you're jogging your memory. You go to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, where it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A Christian has hope in this moment because they have, they're living under a new priesthood. They're living under a new high priest. See, in the the time of the law of Moses, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, one of their big jobs was every year to go into that most holy place and to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Again, remember some of the notes I, some of the symbolism I had alluded to earlier, right? The mercy seat, that covering, has to do with atonement, right? The covering up of sins, and every year on on the Day of Atonement, called Yom Kippur, they would go in to the Holy of Holies. They would have have to consecrate themselves, sacrifice for themselves, and cleanse themselves in all of these rituals just so they could enter in and not be struck dead. But the high priest would go in and they'd sprinkle blood on top of the ark, on top of the mercy seat, between the two cherubim. And this was what atoned the people until the next year. The writer of Hebrews says, We have a new high priest. And this high priest has done the same thing, only in a better way. And really, that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's all about the idea that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He makes the point in chapters 1 and 2 Jesus is better than the angels. He says, Jesus is better than Moses. He's worthy of more honor than Moses. He's better than even Joshua. He gives us a better Sabbath than Joshua. And then he makes, when he gets into chapter 4, and really through the rest of the book, his main point is that Jesus is a better high priest. You see, we who are Christians live under a new priesthood, and our high priest is better in every single way. Let me give you a few points that the Hebrews writer points out. Number one, he's better because he's the perfect mediator. Remember, the job of a priest is to mediate between God and man. Who could be better than that? Who could be better at that than Jesus? Because Jesus is both God and man. He's the only one who can put his feet firmly in both camps. He can approach God because he's perfect, because he's sinless and blameless, and because he's holy. He can approach the throne of God unlike any person could before, right? The high priests of old, they had to cleanse themselves, they had to consecrate themselves just so they can enter into this throne of God on earth. But Jesus has the ability to enter the true throne room of God because He is perfect and sinless. But at the same time, He can also relate to us, as pointed out there in verses 14 and 15. He can relate to and sympathize with our weaknesses because He was also human. He knows what it's like to be tempted. It's important that He spans this gap, isn't it? All the high priests of old, none of them could truly be a perfect mediator between both sides. But Jesus is better because He's got His feet firmly in both camps. He's also better because He's of the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't want us to get too... (laughs) I don't want to get too complex here. Uh, but I encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. Just read it all in one sitting. It's an amazing book. Uh, you might come away with more questions than answers. But uh, I, I really do encourage you to study uh, in more depth. But long story short, I'll try to give you the uh, the brief rundown here of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a high priest that we read about in the book of Genesis. He associated with Abraham. Okay, And we don't know much about how Melchizedek operated. We don't know how he was appointed priest. We don't know who his children were or where he comes from. He just kind of shows up in the text out of nowhere. And and that's kind of the point, according to the Hebrews writer. He's supposed to show up out of nowhere because we're... And the main point that the Hebrews writer is making is he's wanting to reassure the those who were Jewish Christians. He wanted to reassure them that Jesus could still be a high priest even though he wasn't a Levite. Even though he wasn't a son of Aaron. Right? Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Therefore, according to the law of Moses, he would not have been allowed to be a high priest. Right? Everybody with me? Okay. The writer of Hebrews says, don't worry. He's not of the tribe of Levi. Or he's not of the Mosaical priesthood. He's of this older priesthood. The priesthood is spoken about in Psalm 110, where the psalmist there, I believe it's David, pointing to jesus says you are a priest forever in the order of melchizedek so the point is that jesus is is promised in by oath to be a priest through this other order he doesn't have to be of the tribe of levi but the other big point that we learn from melchizedek is that jesus is an eternal high priest and this is another thing that makes him better you see all the priests of uh, the high priests of old they died and it had to be passed on their their office had to be passed on there were always successors but Jesus doesn't have an, a successor because he's not going to die again Jesus is eternal he will not need to be replaced he will not need to run for re-election he's our high priest and he is going to stay as our high priest and that, of course, is one of the reasons why he's so much better as our high priest. The next reason is because he entered the true tabernacle. Go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I'll start in verse 1. It says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, and minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy of and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. What is he saying here? Well, one of the main points I want us to get from this is he says Jesus is a better high priest because he didn't enter into the earthly tabernacle, he entered into the true tabernacle. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, he says it here. The reason Moses had to to follow this very specific pattern even quotes the Exodus passage, right? He's a, that pattern you saw on the mountain. The reason Moses had to follow such a strict pattern was because he was making a copy of something greater. He was making a shadow, a copy of the true sanctuary of God, the true throne room of God. Now, I don't know exactly what that means or exactly how, how we might want to think about that. But, but it's made in no uncertain terms, we're told that the tabernacle that was built by Moses is a copy or a shadow of God's throne room, God's true throne room in heaven. And so here's the great thing. Jesus, as our high priest, he didn't walk through the literal tabernacle behind the literal veil, right, and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He instead walked into the throne room of God which is what the tabernacle is merely a copy of. And the sacrifices that were made of old are a mere copy of the sacrifice that he would eventually make. And that's the fifth reason he's the better high priest. And that is because he used a better sacrifice. He used the best sacrifice of all. And it's kind of an ironic thing, I guess you could say, where he's, he's walking in as the high priest not with the blood of an animal, but with His own blood. And He sprinkles it in the true presence of God. Now look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ is a better high priest because he brought a better sacrifice. So let's put it all together. Let's, let's think about this here. Under the law of Moses, every year on the Day of Atonement, they had to do it continually, year by year. They would atone, they would cover up the sins of the people. The high priest would enter into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Christ, our greater high priest, entered into the true throne room of God with a sacrifice leagues better, right? A sacrifice that was so much better that it didn't have to be done every year. It only has to be done once. And He brings this blood into God's presence and He sprinkles and He doesn't just cover up our sin. He washes our sins away. God, Jesus, is the great high priest. And if we understand this, we understand that Jesus is so much better well if we're a first century Christian who's just heard about the destruction of the temple then we still have hope don't we because we know that even though that temple was sacred and special it was a mere copy of what we have now it was a shadow of the true things to come the purpose of those things was to point forward to the true sacrifice and the true tabernacle and the true high priest that is Christ all of it was meant to point to this better amazing gift that we have so what does that mean for us how do we react or how do we respond to the knowledge that that Jesus is that much better well the Hebrews writer has several warnings for his readers over and over he makes this point. I think it's probably worded best here. Hebrews chapter two, verses one through three. He says, For this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, that's talking about the law of Moses, proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We have something so much greater than the Jews of old had. How, how dare we neglect something so special? And how could we expect not to be punished when the people of old were punished severely, when they turned away from God? How could we expect not to be punished if we turn away from the, the great high priest, the, the true culmination of, of history? We cannot neglect the salvation. We cannot take it for granted. We must realize and understand how special it is. And I think the way we do that is by remembering everything that, that pointed forward, but also through prayer and through study, by by examining Christ and what He did for us. And that starts with reading the book of Hebrews. That's my call for us. Re- read the book of Hebrews and... and Learn about this. It's such an amazing, amazing state, uh, such an amazing lesson to be learned in the book that we simply don't have time right now to discuss it all. But you are a part of something better, something greater. And so I hope you won't take it for granted. Now, I know this lesson is different than most, it's not one filled with application, but I, I really do hope that it will stir within you a desire to, to, to work harder for the Lord, a desire to hold fast to Him, and an appreciation that we can approach we can approach God now. Just as the tabernacle was made so that God could dwell among men, Christ came so that we could dwell with him. Read, I'll read again chapter four. have the amazing gift that we can we can draw come into the presence of God with confidence. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. If there's anyone here this morning who is not a part of this better covenant, who's not a part of this new and better way of life, I hope that you understand you have a God who wants to be among you, who wants to dwell with you. And... That is the very reason for which you were created. He created us so that we would be with him. And he has done all of these amazing things. He sacrificed his only son so that he so that you could be with him. So that you could draw near and approach. And it's not once a year. It's not in such a way that you have to sacrifice for yourself and you have to consecrate yourself and then hope that when you enter, in, and it's not one person out of the entire nation, right? It's all of us. We are able to approach Christ. We are able to approach the throne of God because of His sanctification through His blood. And so, if you're not a part of that, I hope you will seriously consider becoming a part of this better kingdom you have any needs, please come. Let's together we stand and sing.